The aim of our Living with Diabetes podcasts is to share information and inspire, and we endeavour to ensure that the information provided in them is accurate. It's not a substitute for medical or health advice from a healthcare professional who's aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. We always recommend that advice be sought from your GP or diabetes nurse before making any changes to medication or before using any products or services referenced by DRWF. DRWF will not be held liable or responsible for failure to seek competent medical or health advice from a professional who's familiar with your situation. Views, information or opinions contained in podcasts do not necessarily represent opinions, standards or policies of DRWF. The inclusion of details about products or services does not indicate DRWF endorsement of them. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast in our series, Living with Diabetes, brought to you by Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. In this edition, we're talking with Simon Marwood, Associate Professor of Physiology at Liverpool Hope University, who is the subject head for Sport and Exercise Science and Sports Rehabilitation in the School of Health Sciences. And your metabolism gradually runs out of control. Fatigue is progressive and you can't sustain it. Undertaking exercise of any sort will enhance fitness. The majority of the limitation in everyday life with type 1 diabetes resides inside the muscle. The ability to take up and utilise oxygen is impaired. I'm Claire Levy from DIWF, the host of our regular podcast, Living with Diabetes. Simon Marwood is involved in research which examines the impact of exercise on cardiovascular disease. I started our conversation by asking him why people living with type 1 diabetes can benefit from regular exercise. Well, this really goes to the the pathology in the um, macro and microvascular, so the large and the small uh, blood vessels. Um, and pathology there is strongly related to disease, in particular cardiovascular disease. Uh, and that's, of course, likely related to the, um, the persistent hyperglycemia that you get in type 1 diabetes. Um, since, since exercise in general is uh, a good way to reduce risk from cardiovascular disease, since type 1 diabetes are at that enhanced risk of cardiovascular disease, it sort of follows, really, that regular exercise would be essential for long-term health in type 1 diabetes. And all exercise, of course, promotes insulin sensitivity, and we'll probably talk about the problems with that. Um, but the exercise, per se, in, improves that insulin sensitivity, and in the long term, if you can get it right, it makes it easier to regulate blood glucose, which therefore in the long term should help to keep blood glucose lower for longer through any period of time. And so in the long run, that should follow that um, the risk of disease is lower. So you can see many links why exercise would, uh, uh, regular exercise would be of absolute benefit in type 1 diabetes. And why do many people living with type 1 diabetes struggle then to tolerate any sort of significant fitness regime? 
Well, I think there's probably two issues, one of which I think we uncovered a lot of the underpinnings through in this paper. Um, the key issue, of course, is hypoglycemia. The um, enhanced uh, muscle insulin sensitivity that accompanies exercise, if that occurs on top of recently administered insulin, then it's got the potential for hypoglycemic excursions, uh, which can, of course, be severe. I think, you know, if if you're if you're well practiced and an exercise is planned, then there's normally no issue. But of course, um, unexpected exercise is, is a major problem, and and presumably not being someone who has type one diabetes, that that fear of hype and the problems associated with the hypoglycemic episodes um, cause people to avoid exercise, and and I can really understand that. Um, so I suspect the hypoglycemic episode is one. I, I think the other thing, though, and this is what our paper was designed to unpick, our study, was there is, there is evidence, and, and others have shown this, that, that exercise capacity or exercise tolerance is simply inherently reduced in type 1 diabetes. Essentially, aerobic fitness is worse in type 1 diabetes, even for the same degree of physical activity. And so any form of exercise is inherently harder. It feels, well, it is, it's a higher intensity for that individual. And exercise, you know, so being relatively unfit, therefore, by default of the disease, it is in and of itself, presumably a barrier to exercise. So and it's two things going on there. So what can people living with type 1 do to help their exercise routine? And what happens when someone living with type 1 does a short priming warm-up exercise? What does it involve and how does it work? So, um, of course, undertaking exercise of any sort, as long as it's more and or a higher intensity of, of what would ordinarily do, will enhance fitness. And... Um, Planning exercise around a regime of insulin injections would, would be the way to get going and, and trying to avoid unexpected exercise and fall back into that trap. You referred to priming exercise, which is kind of what we call it in the, um, in, in the scientific literature. Essentially, it's a warm-up bout of exercise. So what we did with our participants, we, um, we had them undertake six minutes it was it was a six minute bout of what we call heavy exercise and heavy would be the sort of exercise that you could sustain for sort of maybe 30 40 50 minutes but you'd know about it it would be uncomfortable but it's not the sort of exercise intensity that you'd be done in 10 minutes so it's sort of hard but not too hard and we did that they our participants did that for six minutes then they had a 10 minute recovery and then when they exercised again their capacity to undertake exercise, to tolerate exercise, w was increased significantly. Um, the sort of the broad, a broad brush way of uh, estimating how much exercise tolerance was improved by, on average, if you took an initial 10-minute bout of exercise, our participants would extend that to a 15-minute bout of exercise. So at the sort of 10-minute zone, you've got a 50% increase in exercise tolerance. And you discovered a critical power, the highest intensity before the onset of fatigue. How did this affect people living with type 1? So, well, we, well critical power um, has been known for decades in one form or another. I mean, even 100 years ago, 
the famous physiologist uh, A.V. Hill, he mapped out the relationship between speed and distance of uh, world records. Essentially, critical power is, you, you would have to imagine um, a graph, if you like, of exercise time, so the time that you could undertake exercise for, that would be along the bottom axis. And then power output would be along the, the, the vertical axis. And obviously, if you increase the power, sorry, if you decrease the power output, you would be able to sustain that power output for longer. That makes sense. The relationship that we see, though, is that if you decrease the power output, the increase in exercise tolerance time is disproportionately larger. And so you get this curved relationship, and funnily enough, this curved relationship is preserved across all manner of species. It's not just a human thing. You get this curved relationship whereby as you decrease power output, you can, uh, in, you can increase the tolerance time at that power output more and more, disproportionately so. And you approach what, what mathematically is called an asymptote. And that's a value that the curve approaches but never reaches. Now, that implies there's a power output that you can sustain forever, which, of course, isn't the case. But what this relationship, uh, this, this relationship has been shown, this curvy linear relationship between power outputs, if you were riding a bike, and, and the time that you could undertake any given power output, the asymptote is what we call critical power. And critical power is crucial because it represents an upper limit of what we call a metabolic steady state. So when you exercise, if you, I don't know, walk to the shops or do some light jogging, for example, after a few minutes, you'll get into a steady state. You'll notice this predominantly through your breathing, but underneath that, your oxygen uptake um, in your muscles will steady out. Now, if you go really hard and keep going, your oxygen uptake won't steady out. It will go up and up and up and up until it reaches a maximum value. And shortly after that, you'll have to stop. And so there's a threshold, a threshold of an intensity below which you can achieve this steady state and continue for long periods of time, and above which you cannot reach a steady state and your metabolism gradually runs out of control. Fatigue um, is progressive and you can't sustain it. Um, and that's what we were looking at in this, in this uh, study that we did. And we, this is certainly the first time that this has been characterized um, in type one diabetes. And what's crucial, having explained that, is that it's a sustainable exercise intensity to all intents and purposes, underpinned by whether or not you get into a steady state in terms of your physiology. And so if you're going about your daily life and your daily life tasks that you need to do, walk to the shop, bike to work, if they are, if simply to undertake those tasks, if it requires an intensity above your critical power, you are going to find great stress in undertaking those activities and possibly not be able to complete them. Whereas if that activity is below your critical power, you can complete them fairly comfortably. And more than that, any form of exercise that you might wish to do, playing football, whatever, going for a run, any given speed that you might wish to run around at, 
is easier if your critical power is higher because it sets that limit and if you breach that limit your physiology starts to run away with you and we were able to show with this simple warm-up bout of exercise that that critical power was increased by about eight percent which doesn't sound much but you'll notice that when you translate that out into how long you could carry on for a 10-minute bout of exercise turns into a 15-minute bout of exercise drwf staying well until a cure is found You're listening to Living with Diabetes, a regular podcast from DRWF. We continue our conversation with Simon Marwood. I asked him to go into more detail on how he conducted his research and the team he worked with. So, yes, I should give a massive nod to my co-authors. Firstly, Richie Goulding, who was the first author on the paper. He was my PhD student at the time. And I'd be surprised if I ever get a better PhD student than he uh, He. Un- he did so much work in his PhD, and this was the sort of crowning piece, the final study. Um, my close colleague, Denise Roach, who's actually a, has specific expertise in type 1 diabetes. Uh, and amongst one or two, there's also Philip Weston, who's consultant endocrinologist at the uh, Royal Liverpool Hospitals. And he was completely enthusiastic from the start. I'd never met him before. I managed to book an appointment with him, and I put this on his desk and said, how about we do this? And he was really enthusiastic, uh, and he had a large database uh, of patients. And we did it in two parts. Uh, and the first part, we, want, we wanted to do a cross-sectional study. So we were interested to confirm our suspicion that patients with type 1 diabetes have got some sort of fundamental limitation to their aerobic metabolism, their aerobic physiology. So we got a group of volunteers from... Uh, Phillips Clinic, and then we matched them with people of similar age and similar physical activity status. And we did some standard measurements, so a standard test where we, it's called an incremental exercise test, whereby essentially we put them on an exercise bike and we continually up the power output until they can't carry on anymore. And we measure within that some maximal values, such as the maximal oxygen uptake, and also some submaximal values like the lactate threshold. And these are all valid markers of aerobic fitness. And without question, the patients had worse aerobic fitness than their control group. Um, but we also made measurements of what we call oxygen uptake kinetics. Now, when you start exercising, you will notice there's a transition phase whereby you go from rest to exercise and it doesn't happen immediately. Now, again, you notice this predominantly in your breathing, but actually underlying that, your oxygen uptake is going up fairly rapidly, but it couldn't take two, three, four minutes to reach a steady state, uh, assuming you are under that critical power threshold. Um, And we suspected that the patients with type 1 diabetes would be slower to get to their steady state. which would be in line with their, the idea that aerobic fitness in this population is worse. And we showed that, and that was the first time ever that anyone had shown that VO2 oxygen uptake kinetics in type 1 diabetes were slower than age and activity match controls. So that, that was a first, and that, and that was the first part of the study to establish that fact. Um, 
And then the second part of the study was to take a smaller sample of the type 1 diabetes patients and then do this intervention that we referred to earlier, this priming bet. Now priming or warm-up exercise is it's like a sledgehammer. You basically take all the bits of your physiology that promote the exercise response of so blood flow, oxygen availability, all the enzymes in the oxidative respiratory chain, all the metabolism, and you wake it up. That's why we do a warm-up. That's why everyone does a warm-up before performance. So the uh, warm-up, like I said, it's a sledgehammer approach because it doesn't narrow it down to any one particular area. It just does everything at once. And because we did this because we weren't sure where the limitations were in these patients. We didn't know whether they had an issue with blood flow at the onset of exercise. We didn't know whether it was an issue with the muscle's ability to take up and utilize oxygen. So the priming was a sledgehammer approach. And the first key outcome really was finding that doing this priming bout of exercise, it resulted in their VO2 kinetics of the patients being faster. They reached a steady state more quickly. Um, and that's of massive interest because if you did that with a group of age and activity matched people, you'd just find no difference. And it underlined, it, I think that underlined the point that the patients have got a fundamental limitation in their aerobic metabolism. And we could relieve that, at least in part, by doing this priming bout of exercise. And so there, it was a two-part study, a cross-sectional in the first part to establish what we felt was the case that the type 1 diabetes patients had fundamental issues with their aerobic fitness. Then the second part study the second part of the study where we did the, um, the warm-up, the priming intervention. So what do these findings highlight for the potential for other interventions? And was there another surprising finding? The two key findings were, one, the priming sped that transition to a steady state. And two, that the, that, that faster transition to the steady state resulted in an improvement with critical power. And and actually, given the first, we expected the second because of our previous data that actually Richie Goulding had done as part of his PhD. So once we had that first faster VO2 kinet oxygen uptake kinetics, we weren't surprised with the second that critical powers improved. Although, whilst not surprising, it's of real fundamental importance. What was surprising was where the limitations lie in these patients and i referred a little bit before broadly if you could imagine when you start exercising you've got to deliver oxygen and you've got to utilize oxygen you've got these two things going on and in any given situation whereby this transition to exercise is impaired it's likely to be either one or the other or of course possibly both now because of the generalized issues with micro and macrovascular um, in type 1 diabetes, I assumed that the issue at the onset of exercise will be an, an impaired ability to, trans, to, to deliver oxygen to the muscle at the onset of exercise. And I felt that would be relieved and that would be why the oxygen uptake kinetics were speeded. Without going into all the detail how we got there, our data suggests that the majority of the limitation in everyday life for type 1 diabetes, in terms of their muscular energetics, 
resides inside the muscle. The, the ability to take up and utilize oxygen is impaired at the onset of exercise in type 1 diabetes. And that is what's slowing this transition to the steady state. And the slow transition to the steady state impacts adversely on this parameter of critical power, which in turn has all the issues that um, I, I described earlier. So that was a surprise, mm -hmm. that it was intramuscular problems rather than oxygen delivery. You were following on the research by Dr. Mark Burnley, the University of Kent, <clears throat> and Andy Jones, Professor of Applied Physiology at the University of Exeter. How has Professor Jones made global headlines in recent years? Yeah, so, so Mark Burnley, he wasn't the first to examine the issue of priming, but he he probably laid the, laid the foundations for most of the key principles in the field. And he was supervised during a lot of that work by Andy Jones, who's Professor of Applied Physiology at Exeter, as you say. He, he has undertaken a large amount of research in these various fields of oxygen uptake, kinetics and critical power. And in particular, he's applied them to elite performance. And Andy was, um, was a, played a central role, actually, in the preparation uh, of Aylid Kipchoge for the two sub-two-hour record attempts that we've seen across uh, across recent years, the first one in Monza in Italy and then the second one in Vienna. He um, uh, So he helped test and select the athletes in the first place. He helped um, to try and predict the sorts of speeds um, that would be required, not, sorry, the sorts of physiology that would be required to run a marathon in two hours. And he's just published a paper just uh, at the back end of last year, which was a summary of, of this selection process where essentially the world's greatest marathon winners uh, were tested and all their data is out there. So uh, it's some brilliant work that he's done over the years and in particular in recent times with um, the sub two hour marathon, which a lot of the prediction of how to get to a two hour marathon was based upon this issue of critical power. Although in their case, it gets called critical speed because they're running. Mm. If someone's living with type 1 and is struggling, um, what, what do you suggest they do to improve their uh, fitness and, and how they might improve their, their own exercise regime? Well, I, I'd be wary of, of speaking out of turn with respect to their relationship with their clinician uh, and the work is preliminary. I, I think what would be interesting would be for them, for, for any such people to have this conversation with their clinician um, we didn't experience any adverse uh, event, any adverse events when doing this warm-up bout of exercise prior to the, the secondary bout of exercise where we measured exercise tolerance. And in fact, that secondary bout of exercise, that was a very high intensity that brought our participants to, to, to a stop within two to 12 minutes. So in people who've got well-controlled um, uh, uh, glycemia, I wouldn't really expect any issues. And, and I suppose the obvious advice is to say, look, if you're going to go out for exercise, then do about do a warm up bout of exercise and then wait you know, pause for five to 10 minutes uh, if you can, if you've got the time and then go again. And, and that should, in theory, make the subsequent exercise more comfortable. And I wouldn't, on the face of what we had, expect any adverse events of those of that splitting the exercise up. Um, but I'd be interested to, for a perspective of a clinician on that before we sort of made any bold um, recommendations in that regard, which is why we need to look at this issue in, in a bit more detail. I'd be really interested to hear 
uh, if anything that we've talked about sort of strikes a chord with anyone, um, either in terms of the ability to, to start an exercise routine and how they get on um, once they do. And what I'd like to do next, of course, is to understand how patients with type 1 diabetes, how they respond to a training program, um, which we would ordinarily expect to improve aerobic fitness and whether we would, whether we do observe the same enhancements to aerobic fitness in those patients that we would see in otherwise healthy individuals. And uh, uh, yeah, I'd just be interested in hearing anyone's perspectives living with type 1 diabetes on, on those various issues because it helps inform where you go with the research. If you'd like to contact Simon Marwood with your experiences, his email at Liverpool Hope University is marwoos at hope.ac.uk. That's M-A-R-W-O-O-S at hope.ac.uk. DRWF, staying well until a cure is found. You're listening to Living With Diabetes, a regular podcast from DRWF. To keep up to date with the latest news and information, or to discover how you can continue to support DRWF at this challenging time, please visit the website at drwf.org.uk. This is Claire Levy from Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. Our thanks to Simon Marwood for talking to us and also to you for listening. I'm looking forward to joining you again in our next edition of Living with Diabetes. Living with Diabetes is a Blue Aurora media production for DRWF, copyright 2021, Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. All rights reserved.